This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of Mulan. You'll see how looking at historical context can ruin the message of even the most inspirational of tales, and that even if your name brings to mind 80 spandex, you can lead a rebellion and hold an empire hostage. In the Creature of the Week, if you've ever felt like you're being watched in the forest, the good news is that it's just an adorable Irish wolfhound that's really good at sucking in his stomach. The bad news is that, unless you're stinking drunk, he's probably going to eat you. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 4, A Likely Hero. This is a podcast where I tell the original tales behind legendary stories. Some are popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This week it's a shorter story, with one episode on Mulan, the Chinese legendary hero that Disney made kind of a big movie out of in the 90s. The story takes place in China in the 5th or 6th century, essentially a couple hundred years before the Volsungs of the last story, and almost exactly the same time as King Arthur and his knights are galloping around England. Now for this, there are multiple sources. The first source is a poem called The Ballad of Mulan, but that's only 360-ish words long, and only tells the most basic of the stories. It was written in about the 12th century, though it's said to be referencing a much older work that's been lost to history. There's a stage play that was written in the 16th century, or at the beginning of the Renaissance, that elaborates on the story. After that, there's a 17th century romance that touches on the story, though we'll just use bits and pieces from that. Most of the stories thereafter are just expanded versions of the originals, so I'm just going to use those three sources. Anyway, it takes place in China in the mid-5th century, and it's at a time where there's great unrest in the Northern Empire. This is a time where revolts were breaking out all over the place, and they would sometimes take whole decades to pacify. The Khan, basically the emperor, is drafting an army. There's a usurper, a bandit leader, who's put together a large militia and is attempting to overthrow the Khan. He's from the Black Mountain, and he's called, no joke, Leopard Skin. I don't speak Chinese, so there'll be mispronunciations in this, but if anyone does, please let me know if Leopard Skin is remotely intimidating. It just makes me think of some bandit leader in leopard print spandex dance fighting around his cave. Oh, also, they'll be dance fighting later. Okay, so Leopard Skin has raised an army of over 100,000 men, one that represents an existential threat to the Empire. The Khan needs as many men as he can get, and he sends out draft orders to all the villages. It comes to the village of Hua Mulan's father, Hua Hu. Note that Hua is the family name, and it comes first, and Mulan and Hu are the first names of Mulan and her father, respectively. Twelve conscription orders have been posted, and they all demand that a member of the Hua family come and report for duty as soon as possible. Hua Hu has three children, an oldest daughter named Munan, which I can't imagine that ever got confusing, having Munan and Mulan in the same household. Mulan was the middle child, and Hu did have a son, but the boy was still an infant. The father was so racked with anxiety that he considered taking his own life, presumably to avoid dishonor, but that's not super clear. Now the Mulan from the Disney story is, let's be frank, clumsy with little to no self-confidence. She doesn't know who she is or what she wants, and while she does make a courageous and honorable choice to take her father's place, she's a bumbling fool at the camp, and it takes her a long time before she's anything resembling a competent soldier. Not so with the legendary Mulan. Her father, though old and sick, stayed sharp in his skills well into his old age. 
He was a renowned leader in the army, and even after he left, Mulan said that he practiced every day, both in martial arts and philosophy. He stayed up to date with his weapons, and could be seen running down and shooting eagles out of the sky with a bow and arrow until just a few years ago. And you know who was right by his side? Mulan. She trained daily with him, first out of curiosity and to stem the boredom inherent in medieval village life, but then she found that she really had a talent for these things. She would spar with her father, and then go off with him on hunts. She would help him maintain his armor, and he would tell her all about his life in the army. She's not a tomboy, though, or a fish out of water. She weaves at the loom as confidently as she can thrust a spear, wears silk and armor with the same amount of comfort, and will put you on the ground in hand-to-hand combat, and then make you some tea. Legendary Mulan is all-around awesome. She wouldn't wonder when her reflection will show who she is inside, because she's supremely confident in who she is and what she needs to do. As she's walking up to her house, she sees her father, struggling to get up after leaning on a fence post. He knits his eyebrows at the sound of clashing swords in the distance, people sparring, preparing. His joy is not in winning victories or gaining renown anymore, but watching his daughters comb their hair. He sees death in those conscription papers, and is greatly saddened that he will not be able to live to see his daughters get married. Mulan, to her credit, doesn't hesitate. She has her father's knowledge, and she, at the age of 17, can put it to use. She sees a servant out by the hedge and enlists her help. They go to the market, and she gives her servant money. They buy a horse, bow, arrows, a sword, a spear, and men's armor. They stuff it into a pack, tie it to the horse, and stow it at a neighbor's house, who apparently won't ask any questions. That night, she looks at her feet. She'll need them to be large and sturdy, so she must unbind them. If you haven't ever heard of the practice of foot binding, you're very lucky, and I'm sorry because I'm about to go into it. It's frankly horrifying. Starting in about the 10th or 11th century, most upper-class women in imperial China had this done to their feet. It would make them small, like really, really small, like half the size of normal feet. The process is barbaric. Basically, it would start when a young girl was between four and seven years old, before the arch had a chance to develop completely, and it would take place in the winter, where the foot might have a chance of being numb. The foot was soaked and the nails cut back, and then, brace yourself, all the toes but the big toe were curled under the foot, and then great pressure was applied until the toes broke. It gets worse. The toes were held tightly, and then they made the girl straighten her ankle, and they forcibly broke the arch of the foot shortening it severely. And then they would bandage the toes to the bottom of the foot, and then wrap the whole foot up so that it was severely shortened and folded at the arch, pulling the ball of the foot and the heel as close as together as possible. It was then wrapped in cloth and sewed up so that the girls can't loosen it. Over the course of the next few years, they would have to be unbound on a regular basis, cleaned and softened up if they were resistant. There were professional feet binders who did this, since the mothers might be sympathetic to their daughter's pain and might not make it as tight as they needed to. Eventually, deformities would become permanent, though not without a whole host of health problems, like the bones of the foot re-breaking regularly, infection, or sepsis, let alone the extreme difficulty the woman would have just walking around. That is thought to be one of the appeals, the attractiveness of the gait, as well as the tiny feet in general. For a woman like Mulan, these feet were seen as a mark of high society and a way for her to, quote, marry up, so to speak. 
Also, if you've been paying attention to the dates, the inclusion of footbinding in the story is apocryphal, since footbinding was not in regular practice yet at the time the story takes place. It was, however, in widespread practice during the time the play was put down to paper. Mulan looks at her feet, unbound, and painfully moves her toes back. She's a little distressed that years of painful and horrific footbinding will go to waste, but she comforts herself. Her family apparently has a secret herb that she just needs to boil and soak her feet in, and they will return to their tiny shape. Smaller, actually, and in no time at all. Why she didn't just do this instead of years of pain is beyond me. She changes shoes and painfully gets used to her much more normal feet. She sneaks out in the darkness to her horse. She was a little concerned. It had been a while since she had trained with her father, though it's all coming back to her. She runs through some exercises with everything and somehow mounts the horse without hands, though I can't seem to find a way in which that's possible. Sitting atop the horse and armored to the hilt, she feels like she could bring down not only leopard skin, but the black mountain itself. The next day her family comes to breakfast and she's sitting there, hair up in a male fashion, in men's armor. She tells them to sit. She says that today's the day her father needs to leave. Is he going to enlist? Her mother jumps up and says that he's too old. Seriously, why would you even ask that? Can't you see how upsetting that is? Mulan then calmly asks if her brother and sister can go. Her mother says, no, the sister can't, and the brother's an infant. What are you driving Oh. Mulan then told her family to look at her. They saw a confident, powerful person sitting in front of them at the table. She asked, almost rhetorically, if she was fit to go. Her mother nodded. In tears, she said it was obvious Mulan was fit to go, but what would happen to her? Has she thought this through? She would be thousands of miles away and surrounded by men. They'll have to eat, sleep, shower, and go to the bathroom together. This will last, what, a few days before she's found out and disgraces herself? She'll be surrounded by men for years on end. Desperate men. Lonely men. What if she can't control herself? Or, worse, what if her comrades in arms can't control themselves? That's, of course, horrible, but it's implied that it's more horrible because Mulan wouldn't be suitable for marriage to a good family afterwards. As an aside, the mom has a real and valid concern, but for exactly the wrong reason. Mulan tells her mother not to worry, and the woman stops talking. Confidence radiates from Mulan's voice. She has listened to her father's stories for years. She'll make it work. Mulan then breaks down in tears, realizing that she needs to leave her family. This is war, and in the best case scenario, it will be years until she comes back. Worst case, they'll never see her again. The family holds each other and weeps. There's a knock at the door. They ask for the man named Hu. Mulan steps up. The enlisting officer has demanded he come and Mulan just needs a few moments to get everything together. She says a tearful goodbye to her family, and leaves with the soldiers. She's riding with the two officers, and the second one remarks that this Who fellow is handsome. Like, wow, really handsome. He says, and I quote, He doesn't look like an officer, but a feast for the eye. They ride off in the direction of the enlisting officer. They check in with the enlisting officer, he takes one look at Mulan, says something to the effect of, Huh, I thought Hua Hu was a lot older than that, but waves her on. She enters at the rank her father left, as an officer, and rides along with the two soldiers from the nearby village. They break camp, 
and ride for the Black Mountain. The days turn into weeks on the road, and snowflakes begin to fall on her armor. She's already stitched them up with the needle and leather bindings her mother gave her. She brushed them with her hands and begins to cry. Immediately, she brings her hands to her eyes to brush the tears off and protect her makeup, but remembers that she doesn't need to. They gallop over frozen mountains and through passes until they see the walled city at the foot of the Black Mountain. The city is flying the Empire's flags, and camped outside are the Emperor's armies. They dismount their horses and walk through line after line of tents. Mulan begins to sweat a bit. On the trip here, she had found a way to hide her gender, by going to the bathroom privately or slipping off when it was time to bathe. Here it would be trickier. She would make it work, though. She had to. And make it work she did. If there was going to be a Donny Osmond sung musical number, this would be it, because Mulan and the 3,000 other new recruits were put through training by General Ping, and Mulan rose to the top. The army would be divided into three divisions for the final attack on the valley in which Leopard Skin was hiding. And yes, I said final attack. As it turns out, Mulan showed up at the tail end of the war. Communication over a vast, rural empire is especially difficult in the Middle Ages, and so Leopard Skin was all but beaten by the time she showed up. He had holed up in some keep in some valley, but they had found him, and were wheeling siege engines to his position in order to force him into a battle. He and whatever troops he had left would be forced out to meet Mulan's army. Mulan, as it turns out, would be put in command of one of the forces. I understand that General Ping saw promise in Mulan, but putting her at the command of the army that will meet the desperate, cornered men head-on doesn't exactly sound like a great mission. They have to know that if they're captured, they will be executed, so they'll fight to the death. While they can be assured of victory, Ping is giving this particular assignment to the new recruit. Sure, Mulan shows promise, but Ping would rather this nobody from the provinces take whatever danger is left. Mulan is nervous, but accepts, and they ride out to battle the next day. Sadly, here's where the story gets sparse. The poem is 360 lines, so there isn't much mention there, and the stage play has directions for the actors, but not much description. It's understood that there would have been elaborate fight scenes, and I'll try to fill it in as best I can. Mulan rides out on her horse, leading her troops. Cannons are going off behind her, and the rebels start pouring out of their hiding spots in the mountains. They swarm out like insects, and the Chinese line and rebel line smash into each other. Mulan is stabbing down with her spear from her horse top when she spots him. There, in the back, is Leopard Skin. He's determined at first, but he can see the tens of thousands of men, and one woman, in the Chinese army, and their cannons, and the men closing in from all sides. He spurs his horse back to the hideout. Without their leader, the rebel army falls into bedlam, and the line breaks. Mulan gives chase, presumably dodging trees and other debris falling as a result of the Chinese cannons. She sees his horse outside what's left of their hideout. She dismounts, draws her sword, and enters. It's dark inside, and he almost hits her with his first swipe, but she dodges it. She can see a hole dug toward the back of the room with a pack prepared nearby. He was going to scurry away like a rat if she hadn't gotten there. They fight, and she can hear her father's gentle instructions as she deftly parries sword thrusts and swipes, backing him into the corner of the room. His back touches the wall, and he turns his head in surprise. This is the opportunity she needs. She slices his hand, and he drops his sword. He glances down, 
and then up to see Mulan's sword at his neck. She smirks. Of course, none of this is in the original versions. In the poem, it's just said that she captures him, and in the play it's said that there's a lengthy one-on-one battle, where there would presumably be a choreographed fight scene. So here's where I'm imagining the leopard skin dance battle. And that's a phrase I never thought I would say on this podcast. She walks out with leopard skin at sword point, to the adulation of the men as they're subduing the rebel forces. She's congratulated in front of the men by General Ping, and she's given command over even more. They occupy the rebel stronghold for months, and from there they branch out and quell the rebellions in the land. Mulan's showing great intelligence in her commands. Finally, after a while, it's time to take the traitors to the capital. She rides into the capital to a celebration of the victory over the rebels, and she's summoned to a meeting with the emperor himself. There, she stands next to Ping, who gives her the majority of the credit for the capture of Leopard Skin. The emperor nods and bestows honors on them. Ping will be a marquee over a province, basically a nobleman who governs the area, and Mulan is given the title of attendant in the emperor's court, a high honor. She's given three months' leave to go visit her family, and upon her return she will take the official hat and girdle. She refuses, though. To the court's surprise, all she wants to do is go home and be with her family. The emperor allows her to go. After all, this guy's a hero, and he can have whatever he wants. He announces other awards and honors, and then decrees that Leopard Skin is to be executed for his treason. Mulan says goodbye to General Ping, and makes for the city gates when she runs into the soldiers from the village nearby, the two that she had left with, now years ago. They were given the honor of commanding hundreds of men each, but now also have time off, and they want to travel with Mulan, the hero. The three leave the city together. On the way back, Soldier 2 remarks that Hua Hu, Mulan, is so weird because she will never let him watch her go to the bathroom. If you've ever hung out with your guy friends, and they won't let you watch them go to the bathroom, be assured that they are the weird ones. The other soldier smacks him, he says that Huahu does that because he was born a nobleman. He just has too much class. Also, stop asking people if you can watch them go to the bathroom. That's not something you're supposed to ask your fellow soldiers. Or anybody, really. Mulan returns from her super weird private bathroom break and must have overheard them because she says that in the temple next to her home there's a clay statue in the image of a male but that suddenly changes his looks into a beautiful lady. They said that's absolutely not true, and she says that they should come home with her and see. They return home, and she invites the soldiers in for lunch. They sit and visit with her family, and she changes out of her armor, and then meets with her family in private. They embrace, and she learns that her sister is married, and her brother is now in his early teen years. She tells them of what happened. Her mom laments how she must have suffered, but Mulan assures her that what her mom was worried about did not happen. She's like a lotus that has emerged from the mud without blemish. Mulan walks out to reveal herself to the soldiers. And they are totally cool with it. They just remark that they marched with her, slept next to her, and spent day in day out with her for 12 years, and they never suspected anything. Though I'm sure this does help soldier number two understand the confusing feelings he's had for his commanding officer for the last decade. And this is where I should also address that Mulan apparently spent 12 years in the army. I honestly have no idea how that's possible, as it just seemed like the trip to get leopard skin, ending the rebellion, and onto the capital and then home should have taken no more than two years. 
There's really no accounting for Twelve, since Leopard Skin was kept alive until he went to the capital, so it's not like they would just bring him along unnecessarily as they campaigned around the country. Though, upon thinking about it, perhaps Leopard Skin was a leader of a much larger revolt, one that took years of campaigning around the countryside, defeating and dispersing his men, and using him as an example. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as a historical leopard skin to look at, so how they spent this 12 years will just have to remain conjecture. Anyway, Mulan tells the soldiers that she didn't tell them, not because there was some possibility of her being shamed and put to death for being a woman. No, she didn't tell them because, for all those years, them sleeping next to her, them men, and her a woman, they were like, and I quote, dry wood next to a fierce fire. I'll trust you to read between the lines on this one. But yeah, it was not a big deal at all that she was a woman the whole time. And though her femininity was hard to hide, see Soldier 2's constant comments and attraction, no one ever gave it a second thought. She was so awesome that it was ridiculous for anyone in the army to even consider that she could not be a man. And even if it did matter, she single-handedly saved the country. So even if there was some death penalty or huge shame, which there wasn't, she would probably get a pass. The soldiers then leave. They want to allow Mulan to catch up with her family, and so they take off, assuring her that after 12 years of being brothers in arms, they'll catch up with her soon. As soon as they exit, another young man arrives, about Mulan's age. Mulan's mother brings him in, asking him if he needs anything. She then tells Mulan that this is Mulan's fiancé, and, well, since he's here, why not get married now? Mulan turns away in shyness, but remarks on how it's weird that the soldier that took down a rebel leader should be nervous about her future husband, taking this all completely in stride. It's known that this young man is an important guy, and he's well regarded at the emperor's court, as he just passed his exams and will be an official in charge of book editing. The story ends just before the wedding, with Mulan saying that she will marry the man, and she will follow him on his career. Even though she just came home from the war, she will not bring weapons with her into her marriage chamber, so to speak. In some tellings, she actually accepted the position in the emperor's court. In this case, it's understood that she'll give up her position to be his wife. She muses, as the play closes out, about how she spent 17 years as a woman and 12 years as a man. People have looked her over and over, but it is obvious that the distinction between male and female isn't told by the eyes alone. Maybe the difference isn't that apparent. Maybe it isn't that important. While it is true that nighttime devours the day, it is doubly true that every morning the sun returns to frighten away the cowardly darkness. So that's the brief and unsatisfying original version of Mulan. She goes and wins greatness for her family and for her country. And what happens after she comes home? She's told that she's going to be married to a man she's never met. A man, remember, who could work his whole life and still never win the type of renown Mulan did. I would imagine you're wondering what sort of message the story is supposed to give. It seems odd that a society that's having women bind their feet would be espousing this seemingly powerful message of equality, right? Well, setting aside that Mulan re-entered life exactly as she left it, a perfectly proper woman ready for marriage, presumably rebinding her feet. I've read some different interpretations on this story. Remember, Mulan didn't leave because she wanted to prove something or find out who she was. She left because she wanted to serve her family and serve her country. Some interpretations read that the Mulan story is more to chide men on to filial and patriotic duty 
Because surely if a woman can do it, they can. How can the men fail to do their duty where a woman succeeds? Ugh. Of course, the message we can take away at this point in time is a lot better, and I would imagine that has contributed to the story's long life. The story is constantly changing with the times. It's been brief, like above, where Mulan is little more than a loyalty robot. Sad, as in the telling in the 17th century, where Mulan commits suicide at the end, rather than join a foreign emperor's harem, to the empowering versions of the 20th century. It's nearly impossible to pin down the real, historical Mulan, so that's enabled the story to adapt to the culture and times in which it was interpreted. Next week, I'll tell the story of a sorcerer from Russian folklore, who is one part Ice King from Adventure Time, one part Voldemort, and one part sad, sad, lonely man. If you've enjoyed the show, let me know by leaving a review or subscribing on iTunes. I've added some stuff to the site at www.mythpodcast.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at MythPodcast. Before the Creature of the Week, I also want to thank Colin P. Thompson and One Track Gamer for the reviews. And I just want to thank S. Cowan and Charlotte for leaving feedback on the website. I really appreciate it, and I love to hear from everybody. So thank you so much. The Creature this week is the first from American folklore. It beats the Barbagazi as the most literally named creature because it's called the Hide Behind. It hides behind stuff. Trees, mostly, as it is a fearsome critter that stalks lumberjacks and other unwary travelers in the forest, snatching them unaware and dragging them back to its lair to devour them. It was thought to be the explanation for lumberjacks who never returned to camp. Depictions range from an adorable Irish wolfhound hugging a tree to a horrifying, shadowy, Slenderman-esque creature contorting itself behind a tree in wait for its next victim. Lumberjacks are big guys, though, and usually know forests well and carry axes, so how could this creature sneak up and catch them? Well, it's said to be so fast that it can immediately slink behind any nearby tree. Well, okay, but what if only skinny trees were available? Well, the hapless lumberjack is not out of the woods yet, both literally and figuratively, because the creature can suck in its stomach so that it can become so slender that it can fit behind any tree. There's one way to avoid the creature, though. It subsists on the contents of the intestines and has an aversion to alcohol. So, logic holds, if you're going to go out for a walk in the woods, it's better to be completely stinking drunk, because it's better to be wandering around the forest drunk with an axe than risk running into this creature. You know, for safety. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by the unassailable Steve Combs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly 